It's about learning to work with your biology rather than compete against it to dial down the stress because it's impossible to live a life without stress. And it's truly biologically impossible. You need a little bit of healthy stress to get on with your day. The difference is that you want to keep your stress in check, keep it healthy rather than unhealthy. Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. All right. So I don't know about you guys, but since this year has started, I've really been focusing on resetting. I think more so than I have in previous years for some reason. I know 2023 was insanely crazy for me and my crew, many highs, lows, and just like a lot of whiplash for many different reasons. And so when I found out we were interviewing Dr. Aditi Narukar, I was like, wow, holy God, this is exactly what I need right now. Dr. Aditi Narukar is a Harvard physician, speaker, national television correspondent, and host of the podcast, Time Out with Eve Rotsky. She is also a lecturer at Harvard Medical School in the Division of Global Health and Social Medicine and serves as the co-director of the Clinical Clerkship in Community Engagement. She has spoken at the Forbes 30 Under 30 Summit, the HBS Women's Conference, and many, many other events. And most importantly, her new book, which just came out this week, The Five Resets, Rewire Your Brain and Body for Less Stress and More Resilience just came out this week. I actually just finished it and it was probably the best thing I've done for myself to start out the year. Very digestible and she gives practical tools to use every day and girls and guys, I don't know about you. I've been stressed since like 1992. So this was just a great way to reset my thinking for this year. I hope you guys enjoy my interview with Dr. Aditi Narukar. Well, Happy New Year. Very excited to meet you. And where are you right now? Are you based in New York? Boston. Boston. Okay. And, and you, oh yeah, obviously you, you work at Harvard, duh. I could not think of a more perfect time to talk to you. First, congratulations on the book. I want to tell you my week was stressful. Your, I guess, publicist uh, or agent gave me the, the copy, started reading it. It was already, I think I read the first 30, 40 pages in like 10 minutes. It was such a, an easy, digestible read, which is what I need. Everyone needs nowadays. The personal stories that you started telling, it's going to be a quick book, meaning in a great way. Very digestible, very easy, very relatable. So I started that on Tuesday when my kids went back to school. And then Wednesday, one of them tested positive for COVID. Bummer. Then my husband. And then the other one. So I'm the only one that hasn't. Um. <laughs> Anyways, it was a long week. It's fine. I didn't get to finish, but that's okay. <laughs> but yeah, I, I usually like to finish up the book before the interview, but I got a taste of it. And in a way, I'm excited to know more through you anyways. But so far, loving it. I just want to say congrats. And I know it's launching on Tuesday. Tuesday, January 16th. Tuesday, yeah. January 16th. You know, I've obviously read people's reactions to it. And, you know, Bobby Brown has talked about it. Malcolm Gladwell. I mean, talk about names. I just want to ask you really quickly before we dive into it. Are you surprised by the reaction to this book? You know, it's so interesting because at the start of our conversation, you said that there are 10 girlfriends you've spoken to this week who are just so stressed and burned out, and it's only the beginning of January. So on one hand, stress and burnout both, we're seeing unprecedented rates across ages, genders, countries, industries. It is truly the great equalizer. As a doctor, I've always known this because my specialty is in stress and burnout. But particularly now, and I think if there is one silver lining of the pandemic, there are very few, but if there is one is that stress and burnout and mental health overall has really come to the forefront. It's come into the C-suites. People are talking about this in a much bigger way. There is, of course, still taboo, which we have to dismantle. But in many ways, people are shining a light on this. And right now, in a room of 30 people, 21 have stress and burnout. So if you are feeling this way, like you're 
the girlfriends that you were speaking to, or you right now managing an acute stress of a family with COVID and you being a caregiver and a primary caregiver right now for your husband and kids. And for all of us who are living and working and parenting in this crazy chaotic chaotic world in January, 2024, unfortunately, stress and burnout are the rule and not the exception. So if you are feeling this way, you are not alone and it is not your fault. I think I was very pleasantly surprised that Katie Couric, Bobby Brown, Ariana Huffington, Eve Rodsky, they gave me endorsements for the five resets after reading it. What was really beautiful is that when they read the book, they said like, I see myself in these pages. And I think we all see ourselves in these pages, including me. Before I became a doctor with an expertise in stress, I was a stress patient looking for answers. And I share that story in the five resets, but stress and burnout is not something that is just affecting a few of us. It's affecting all of us in different ways. And so the timing of this book, particularly after the past three to four years on me of what we've been through, we've had a collective and individual sense of trauma because of, you know, global events that shall remain nameless, starting with a P. We can use that word once, pandemic, and then never again. So we are just dealing with the aftermath of that. And unfortunately, the onslaughts don't end. They just keep going and going and going. We are currently in the middle of two conflicts internationally, likely to be more. There was a racial reckoning in there in 2021. Election year this year? Election years coming up. So there are just onslaughts one after the other. Our brains and our bodies need time for rest and recovery and to recharge, and we just haven't gotten that. So hopefully the five resets can help give you that sense of rest and recovery in the middle of your overscheduled chaotic life. I also wanted to mention just the title itself felt comforting. I really like that you simplified it, five resets, because I think we are all so overwhelmed with the advice and the opinions and well-being and just the wellness industry in general. That becomes stressful. Which path am I going down? What am I doing? Like, how do I fix myself. So I, I like the simplicity of it. And I also really, and at the beginning of it, you you had, I think, four questions for the readers to decide whether we are you are stressed or burned out. I answered yes to I think all of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, of course. And I you think did. most people yeah, I think most of us would. I'm thinking, you know, I was thinking this morning when I was writing notes and about stress and what it means and what it's been doing to me in my life and my journey. And I'll tell you about that. But I also think, particularly for you and I, and, and maybe people in our age generation, that we are going through this time now. I'm in my 40s where I'm raising kids, I'm taking care of the parents, I'm trying to like build this career more and more. We are at the pinnacles of our careers, and we're kind of in this sandwich time where we're in charge kind of everything it feels like. And also trying to take care of ourselves and trying to spend time with the friends and trying to stay healthy and look good. And my mom always asks me, and I don't know if your parents are around and if they are, if they do ask you this, my mom always is so genuinely surprised as to why I'm always stressed. She's like, why is it you guys, your age, your generation is always stressed? And my answer to her is, besides times being different, we just have a lot more that we think about versus, I don't want to say that because obviously our parents worked hard, but there's just a lot more going on nowadays. So what would your answer be to my mom? Why are we more stressed out than our parents? I get asked that a lot too. And my parents will say, it's because your generation thinks too much. I get the same. First off, it really is heartening for me to hear that you find the title comforting, that you started reading it, you felt like it was an easy read. All of that is very intentional. When you're feeling a sense of stress and burnout, the last thing you want to do is pick up a book on stress and end up feeling more stressed. And so I want this reading experience of the five resets to feel very therapeutic. I like to call it bibliotherapy. So as you're reading it, I want you to have that healing experience. And really feel like, oh, I'm not alone. It's not my fault. So the first job of a doctor is to help normalize and validate difficult experiences. And we are all going through our own difficult experience with stress and burnout. So that really means a lot to me. 
In terms of why we as a generation are struggling more with stress and burnout than others, I think it's about the context and what time we are living in. It's 2024. We are bombarded with information, not just locally, but nationally and internationally at a pace that our brains and our bodies can't keep up with due to this little device here, our smartphones and just things that we read. We know that based on the data. The information overload is a real issue and it's of course contributing to our stress and burnout. I also think societally, the demands and pressures that we have on ourselves and that others have upon us are much higher than they ever were. You even said it yourself, right? You are supposed to work like you don't have any children. And then you are meant to parent and mother like you don't have a job. And I think the expectations are just so much higher than they were prior with our parents' generation, and both the, the ones that we put on ourselves and the ones that society puts upon us. And it's just a different time. It might have been a simpler time. I know every generation says that, oh, we lived in a simpler time, but it sure feels like like it, like I was a child of the 80s and 90s. And I think about that time, pre-technology, pre-internet, all I did for most of my childhood was ride my bike from one friend's house to the other. Yes, with wasn't Barbies. it awesome? Like you didn't have to worry. Yeah. And my, you know, all of our friends and neighbors would take care of each other. And I think now the world is just really different. Unfortunately, our brains and our bodies while the world has evolved and changed and grown, that part, that innate part of your brain that governs stress, it's called the amygdala, not to get scientific, but it's a small almond-shaped structure in the brain. And that amygdala is unchanged. We call it the lizard brain or the reptilian brain in scientific terms because it is unchanged from our cave dwelling days. So while the world is moving forward at breakneck pace with technological advancements and demands on our time and our attention, that part of our brain is not moving at breakneck pace. In fact, it's stuck in the cave dweller days. So in many ways, while our brains and our bodies are really adept at handling short-term stress, now, like all the things that we've talked about, we don't have short-term stresses anymore, very few. Most of our stresses are long-term, financial, marital discord, professional, health, taking care of children, and at the same time, taking care of elderly parents. We know that caregiving stress is a real entity now. We didn't know that 30, 40 years ago. And I think it's just a different playing field. So you need to be equipped. You need to have the tools to be able to manage that. Now, that's not to say that you can't manage it. Of course you can, but it's people, individuals, and human beings who are resilient. It's the systems that are burning us out. That 100% for sure. So uh, two points on that. One, I was just thinking about when you mentioned bike riding and going out and playing all day, I have a lot of stress around parenting, all due to my own, I mean, my, I do it to myself. A small example, and I think you'd appreciate this, is, you know, we live in Dallas. I have two little girls, 10 and 7. If they go in the front yard, just our front yard, I let them go, but I'm constantly watching, keeping an eye on them. We live in a great neighborhood, great, we know all our neighbors. There's something in me, though, that has this stress response, whether that's watching too much news, true crime podcast, whatever it is. During the holidays, we went to the Virginia countryside. My best friend has a house out there. 30 acres, just theirs, of rolling land. She lets her girls are the same age. That week, all four girls were walking around the countryside by themselves without parental supervision. The first day it happened, I was having panic attacks. And by day five, and my, you know, my husband is a lot more, you know, let it go. It's fine. Everything's fine. By day five, I felt like I had like taught myself a little lesson of letting go just a little bit. Like we got back to Dallas and all of a sudden I was like, yeah, go in the front yard. Um, mommy's going to cook. And I, I attempted for like 45 minutes just to stay inside and not check and not stress. It was a little shift. It was a small shift in me, but it, it's such a, it was such a big deal. Of course it was that experience. So I'm a mom too. And I think that it's very natural when you're 
it's also your environment, right? You're living in a city. You're just more aware of certain dangers. You are now transported to the countryside. That alone, we know based on the data, can improve your stress because you are just around lots of nature. Forest bathing is what they call it in Japanese culture. So you are just around lots of nature and there's a different norm simply because like it's their space and it's their land and the children can go out and yeah, it's a different time. So don't beat yourself up about it. There's nothing to berate yourself. Either way, you know, you're doing the best you can as a mom and living in 2024 is a potentially scary time. And I think that when we read the headlines and different things that are happening in other parts of the country, it's a natural instinct to want to protect. Of course, it's a natural instinct to want to protect your offspring, especially the work that you do. You work in media and communication, and therefore you are plugged in and you're reading things and you're an informed citizen. And then that inevitably sparks your stress response. In the five resets, I talk about the primal urge to scroll, how we, it's the way we scan for danger. You know, the same way that you go outside in the front yard and look around, like, are my, are my girls safe? What's going on? Look around. That's scanning for danger. When we feel a sense of stress, our lizard brain, the amygdala, starts firing up. It's our fight or flight response. Hypervigilance is increased. And that's what you were describing, like going out into the front yard. Then, you know, that first day having panic, panic attacks, it's hypervigilance. It's a classic manifestation of the stress response. And then you know, you're checking your phone. That's how many of us, when things are happening in the world, especially the past couple of weeks, you may have noticed an uptick of checking and scrolling. It's not, and it doesn't make you feel better. It makes you feel worse. It increases your stress. And therefore you keep scrolling and scrolling because it's these stressors that are happening, whether it be in Dallas, in the US or other parts of the world, it's stoking your sense of survival and self-preservation, just like your offspring. You know, it's these Two little humans are the most important thing in your world. So of course, it's natural to have that. It's biologic. So it's not you, it's your biology. And it's about learning how to, whether it be that example or any example where you feel that sense of hypervigilance or really keyed up and anxious, it's about learning to work with your biology rather than compete against it to dial down the stress. Because it's impossible to live a life without stress. And it's truly biologically impossible. You need a little bit of healthy stress to get on with your day. But the difference is that you want to keep your stress in check, keep it healthy rather than unhealthy. Right. I, li- I love it. I'm so glad you said that because there are, you know, when I get that panicked and they get that stressed, the first thing I always ask myself is what is wrong with me? Like, why can't I not calm down? Like, so the first thing is to start blaming yourself, right? And I loved in the book when you, when you said, you know, the premise of the book is obviously stress is not a bad thing. We need stress. Obviously, we're talking about the amygdala, amygdala, our lizard brain started with cavemen or, you know, whatever we want to call them. And they needed that to stay safe from whatever dangers were back then. And so it's something that humans have had since day one. But what's happening, what you've mentioned in the book is that we're out of frequency with our stress, right? And so I love that you say that stress needs to be reframed what stress is. And it's not a negative. It's just the way we're dealing with it. And I love that you said it that way. Not all stress is created equal. So when your girlfriends are saying, you know, I'm so stressed, or if you and I are talking and, oh my God, January, I'm so stressed. When we talk about it in pop culture, what we're talking about in scientific terms, it's unhealthy stress, what we call maladaptive stress. It's like unproductive, dysfunctional stress. But not all stress is created equal. There are two kinds of stress. There is healthy stress, which is adaptive stress, and unhealthy stress, which is maladaptive stress. So examples of healthy stress, everything in your life that is good was created because of healthy stress. For you, for example, taking that Chinatown bus to and from Boston to New York could have been a little stressful, making sure you got to the bus on time, making sure there was no traffic. But again, it got you to your boyfriend at the time, right. who is now your husband. That's a little bit of healthy stress. After Planning that, your wedding. You, propose. <laughs> <laughs> you endured a lot of like, stress for that guy. Like, yeah, like a lot of bus rides. I need that ring now. Thanks. Yeah, Sorry, you, need that, you need that. You took a lot of stressful bus rides. That's the payback, right? Yes. And so with your girls, you know, being pregnant, 
having a child, giving birth, raising your children, stressful, but the good kind of stress, buying your first home, graduating from school, rooting for your favorite sports team. These are all examples of healthy, manageable stress. However, when stress goes haywire, when that stress becomes unhealthy, counterproductive, that is when it becomes maladaptive. And that's when all sorts of things happen. So our goal with the five resets in our life The goal is not to live a life without stress. It's biologically impossible because you need a little bit of healthy stress to get you up out of bed. You know, when you look at the curve, there is a scientific curve of stress and too little stress can't get you out of bed. You're you're bored. You're not motivated to even engage very much. And too much stress is where many of us are. We're to the right of the curve. We're way too stressed. So there's that sweet spot right in the middle healthy, manageable stress that we're all aiming to achieve. It's very difficult right now to get there, but not on your own, but not without the reset. So these five small but mighty mindset shifts can get you away from that unhealthy stress back to healthy, productive stress, which serves you rather than harms you. Right. The reframing of it, I think, is is really important. So in the book, you mentioned just going over a few of the points that I really liked. You have the um, resilience rule of two, making no more than two changes at a time because doing more is unsustainable. I think the one point you make, which I I struggle with and I feel like all women will struggle with, is accepting that multitasking is a myth. (laughs) How? How is this a myth? This is the one thing I, I hold over my husband saying, I can multitask. I do way more than you do. You do one thing at a time. And I'm very jealous of him because... I think it's a male-female thing. Obviously, correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like men tend to be able to focus on one thing uh, and and excel at that. That's what he does. And I'm sitting here doing 25 different things and not excelling at anything. That's, That's what it feels like to me and a lot of my female friends. So why is multitasking a myth? (laughs) So first, there is nothing inherently different between your brain and your husband's brain. It's not, these are not gender differences. These are all about societal norms and norms that are placed. (laughs) Well, they exist and it's real, but it's because of societal norms and how boys are raised versus how girls are raised. So it's not so much about biologically, there's something different in a female brain or a male brain. There's nothing inherent there, but The reason multitasking is a myth is because multitasking is a scientific misnomer. There is no such thing. When you multitask, and I am a fully recovered multitasker, but I was, I used to wear the badge of honor of multitasking prior to knowing the science. Multitasking, what you actually are doing is task switching. You're doing two tasks in rapid succession, two separate tasks. And studies show that even though 100% of us think that we are excellent multitaskers like you, the truth is only 2% of human brains can effectively multitask. Now, you may be in that 2%. (laughs) (laughs) No, I am definitely not. (laughs) (laughs) What happens with multitasking, or rather task switching, which is what it really is, is that over time, it weakens another part of our brains, which we haven't talked about yet, the prefrontal cortex, which is the area of your brain right behind your forehead. And what it does is that area governs memory, planning, organization. It also is responsible for solving complex problems. So I don't know about you, but my world is filled with complex problems. I assume yours are, your world is too. And we can't afford to multitask. So the antidote to multitasking is in fact monotasking. It takes a little time to do, but it's that one- That seems this, so hard. <laughs> it does. Like, it do does it. initially, <laughs> but your brain will thank you. Your stress and burnout will thank you. Because what multitasking, quote unquote, multitasking actually does is that it decreases your productivity even though you're doing it to think that it increases your productivity because your brain is really wired to do one thing at a time. And monotasking, you can actually build this science into your everyday life by, let's say like you have an hour of time to complete four tasks or, you know, in our case, 10 tasks because we're working moms and the work is never done. So instead of doing five tasks at a time or four tasks at a time, instead give yourself a 15 minute slot and finish one task. 
then take a five minute break or two minute break, do something different in that break, like be intentional with that break because that is actually impacting your brain. And then spend 15 minutes doing another task and then take a five minute break and then 15 minutes for the other. So by the time you're finished that one hour of time, you have made headway on every single priority that you had. You're not doing it all at once. You're protecting and preserving that part of your brain that is responsible for solving complex problems. And in turn, you feel that sense of productivity, like I did it, I finished, I made headway, and you are preserving your mental health and in decreasing your stress and burnout in the process. It takes practice. You may not be able to do 15 minutes at a time. You may only be able to do five minutes at a time, then give yourself a one minute break. Build it up over time. I mean, when I wrote the five resets, I used time blocking or monotasking to, to actually do that. In fact, everything I do now, I time block or monotask only because now I know the science. So I followed the science, but it took me decades to get here. So if you are new to this world of monotasking, and if you are like me and you priding yourself on being a multitasker, these small shifts can make a big difference. Okay, Aditi, I'm going to try. <laughs> try to do this. Report back. I'm going to report back. So advice from you. What do you do to take a break? And then, you know, I know in the book you started talking about, I think you were in residency when you started feeling these palpitations and maybe panic attacks. Started understanding what stress, how stress was affecting you. So what has your journey been with stress up till now? And then what do you do for breaks? So I will say right now, I am the master of relaxation in the midst of a book launch, in the midst of being a working mother and being married and having a million things happening. I relish in my downtime like a boss. I would love more downtime, but I really do try to optimize downtime and try to build in a little bit of relaxation every single day. What I'm doing at this minute, because life is at a stress-wise seven or eight out of 10 right now for me, for me, it changes. So when I do feel that sense of like pressure cooker, as I feel now and have for the past several months, simply because of this book launch and just work in general, my go-to is sleeping, aiming for a 10 o'clock bedtime. So sleep as a therapeutic intervention, it doesn't always happen, but it, I really protect my sleep like the vital resource it is. I try to do some form of daily movement every single day, even if it's 15 or 20 minutes, and I meditate. So meditation has been very, very helpful to me. Again, all of these things, it's not like I started doing them all at once. It took years to be able to meditate. For 30 minutes now, I, I do anywhere from 20 to 40 minutes a day. But those are sort of my non-negotiables. But it took me a long time to get here. So that is like the second part of your question. The first part of your question is like, why do I do that now? It's because of my origin story. Before I became a doctor with an expertise in stress, I was a stressed patient looking for answers and I couldn't find them. So I decided to be the doctor that I needed during that difficult time. I was a medical resident, a senior resident working in the cardiac ICU, taking care of everyone's hearts, but not really focused on my own. And I lead with this story in the five resets. It's the first time that I've shared a personal story. Doctors don't usually share personal stories because we really try to make it about the patient, you know? So it was a real journey for me to go there and be vulnerable and open about that. But I did it because it's just so important to share the reason behind why I do the work that I do. It is professional, but it is highly personal. And I was post-call. So as you know, with your many friends who work in the medical field, I had just finished 30 hours in the hospital. I was rounding on my patients before I left. And it felt like a flutter across my chest initially and then soon became a stampede of wild horses. So I immediately stopped. It knocked the wind out of me. I sat down. The nurse noticed something and brought me some orange juice. And we both laughed it off because it dissipated within seconds. And she said, oh, it's probably just low blood sugar. You had a rough night. You know, lots of admissions in the hospital, lots of sick people. Yeah. So that was it. We laughed it off. I went home. I got some sleep. So it never happened again while during working hours or during waking hours. But at night when I would go to go home, get into bed, and right as I was falling asleep, I would get that stampede of wild horses. And it happened night after frustrating night. And that is when after the first or second week, I said, I'm going to get some medical attention because I frankly was quite concerned that it wasn't my heart. 
I went to see a doctor. I saw several doctors. I did the full medical workup, blood tests for thyroid and anemia and electrolytes and everything under the sun. I got an a EKG, which is that line tracing of your electrical activity of your heart. I got a heart ultrasound, echocardiogram. Everything was normal, perfectly normal, in fact, not even anything out of, out of tune. The doctor smiled and she said, oh, this is great news. It's all normal. Congratulations. She was very reassured. Oh, it's probably just stress. Just try to relax. You know, we've all been there. Medical training is hard. Take a little break. And so she ushered me out of her office and I left completely stumped, like first saying, stress, stress doesn't happen to people like me. I'm resilient because I had bought into that resilience myth that I talk about in the five resets. So that was my first sort of like, no way, this is not stress. This is something serious and real. And then the second part about like, just try to relax. What does that even mean? So I I didn't know know what that meant. So I just, you know, did what we all do. So I spent a lot of time with friends. I was single at the time. Hug out with my girlfriends. I went shopping. I got a bunch of massages. I spent time with family and had good, yummy dinners. I took naps. I watched some good TV, but nothing helped. It was like a month of doing that. And I still worked 80 hours a week because I couldn't exactly, you know, stop my medical training. And then finally, I put on my scientist hat, read everything I could about stress and burnout and how it impacts the body. And then I started finding my way out of stress. And I did. I did over, I would say it took me about three months. And I started slowly incorporating one thing at a time. Then I started incorporating two things at a time. And then that's when I stopped because of the rule of two. And I found my way. I found my way out of stress. And so now I know all of the strategies and I have that toolbox. And over since that, that was my that was my only debilitating experience with stress when I was a medical resident. And since then, I've had lots of stress in my life, but I have been able to pick it up early enough and act on it using all of the strategies that are in the five resets. In fact, over the past three months, I have doubled down on all of those strategies for myself as I launch a book about stress because it is a stressful time for me. So these things work because they work with your brain and your body and the biology of stress. And now I just know very early what is about to happen. And so I can tackle it head on. But for many people like me back when I was a medical resident, I didn't know I had gotten those whispers of what was happening, but I wasn't paying attention to them. I didn't think it was real. And so until it got to the point where I felt like I had a stampede of wild horses, right? It showed up physically, which, well, one, I want to say what you said you had children, you now I do, yes. Oh, what, a, what a wonderful gift to share with them. Because if they can learn how to manage their stress younger, that's going to change how they go through life. Yeah, but you know, you don't listen to your mom, right? I yeah, mean, I know. But you, you do. Like, mom. The voice, but always put the voice in there and the voice comes back at the right time. Yes, Just, yes, I, yes. I truly believe they do listen. I, I will always keep talking. And one day they will be like, oh, wait, mom, hold on. They'll, they'll just file it back. Yeah, it goes, it goes deep. It goes deep. My mom now, I mean, she's obviously, thank God, knock on wood, she's around. But everything she's has taught me and told me is in my head now, forefront. <laughs> <laughs> I know you end up sounding like your parents when you're a parent. It's I know. And, I, and I'm proud of it. I love it. So mine has, I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis three years ago. My dad had it. We've moved around quite a bit. We've moved, this is our seventh move in 14 years because of the husband's job. All good stuff. You know, it's all positive and we're very, very lucky and it's been fantastic, the reasons why we're moving. But during one of the moves, it just triggered with the stress, uh, the amount of stress I was feeling. I truly believe you're a doctor and you know stress, so you can tell me your thoughts. My brother is a GI as well. I truly believe mine's all stress-induced and less to do with the food that I eat. I know it's probably a combination of both, but I do feel like my stress manifested physically. Yeah, with stress, it's a diagnosis of exclusion, and your brother will tell you that. It's never the first thing that we, we always check everything else because there could be something actually happening. So you don't want to brush it off and say, oh, I have headaches or I have 
abdominal pain or chest pain, eh, it's just probably stress. You, of course, want to get that full medical workup, which is what I did. And then once you are told like, hey, everything checks out okay, it's probably stress, that's when you start tackling your stress. But for you with ulcerative colitis, typically there is stress is implicated and is a contributing factor to flares, but it's not causative, meaning it won't, stress hasn't been found to cause an illness, but it can make it worse. And so for you, you have a family history of ulcerative colitis, and this is something that you are managing, but certainly when when you have periods of stress, it flares. It flares every move, every move. That's the only time, and then I'm fine. That's right, because it's a time of transition and upheaval, it's a trigger. Stress is a trigger for your ulcerative colitis. You said mostly more like more than food, and it could be a combination for I you. Feels it feels that way. It feels that yes. way. Yeah. It depends. Everyone is different. You know, every single person is different. There is the gut-brain connection, which is something I write about, and it's this idea that your brain and your body are in constant communication. It's a it's a form of the mind-body connection. And so there's lots of stuff, you and I can talk about it offline too, of things that you can do in addition to seeing your gastroenterologist and taking medications and all of the wonderful things that you're doing. In addition, are there ways that you can support your gut health and your gut-brain connection so that you can decrease the impact of stress? Let's say there's like a move coming up. Are there things that you could do prior to that move? Hopefully you don't have to move, but if you do, so that your flare isn't as pronounced, you know? I'm just going to hide in the next move. I'm like, if we move, I'm like, I'm just going to go away. <laughs> just yeah. whatever happens. Hang out in Hawaii for a month and show up and be like, yeah. oh, are we done? Tell my husband, just, just hire people. I don't care what happens to the house. Yeah. <laughs> okay, before we, we move on, I, I want to make sure we, we cover a little bit of, about growing up. This podcast is a focus on our South Asian community around the world and, and kind of the South Asian angle of things. So how does our culture, our upbringing tie into our stress levels? Is it unique, uniquely different for South Asians, do you think? You know, I've thought about this question a lot, particularly because I knew I was going to have this conversation with you. But in general, I've just thought about the immigrant experience, the South Asian identity, and stress and burnout. I wish I knew more in terms of the literature. You know, these are more of my personal anecdotes and my experiences being a South Asian woman an immigrant myself and also the child of immigrants and having a deep tie to the motherland, going to India. I have lots of family in Bombay. I visit often. I was born there. I speak Marathi fluently and I can get by in Hindi. It's very complicated. And I think there's lots of layers. So I do not think that there is biologically anything inherently different about being a South Asian versus other right? Like just the way we said that there's nothing inherently different about being a woman or man when it comes to your brain and how you can multitask. But the layers are that there are so many cultural factors, psychosocial factors, emotional factors, and it's a really complex interplay between all of those. We as South Asians, all cultures do this, but particularly South Asians. And I would like to even say perhaps even more the immigrant community, we really do look down upon mental health in a way that is ostracized and the shame and taboo. Growing up, I remember this, I'll say it in Marathi, loka kaimarnar. There are many variations to this. It, it essentially means what will people say? What will people think? What yeah. will people say? talk yep. about. There's there's that saying in all the languages. In every Local language. Mental health particularly, there is a taboo all around the world. And my job is really to dismantle that and really shine a light on the fact that stress is the great equalizer. Every single person, including these great leaders that you may look up to in the South Asian community, struggle with stress because it's the great equalizer of the human experience. If you are human, you are going to struggle with stress. That is just the bottom line because that is life. So I hope that this new generation of young South Asians really talk about it and normalize and validate it. But I think for us particularly, we are at this strange generation where we were raised by parents who came to the U.S. in the 1970s. And in many ways, I think about, you know, my parents are incredibly liberal and forward-thinking more than most, they are amazing and have always been. 
very supportive, really open to this day. There is an element, though, I think, for that group of immigrants who came over in the 1970s, maybe in the early 80s, they held on to the India that they once knew. And my parents have traveled every single, right? So my parents travel every year to India and I have as well. So we started to see India changing and the people that lived in India have changed with the times. So I think now, because there is so much of like that cross-pollination of us going there so much and there's social media and everyone's like, it's changed. And that is a wonderful thing. But growing up, it was different. It wasn't, it didn't feel like this. But I think we have so much work to do as a community to really increase the resources and access to mental health, to make people feel like it's okay. Start talking you know, about it. Like, start, yeah. just start, this is step one. Just talk about it. Yeah. We talk so much in the South Asian community, family, togetherness, people, community. These are all of our strengths, right? Like, we really do prioritize that group and collective. Yeah, the, our, the beauty of our culture, for sure. Yeah. And so we should move away from that, like, what will people say kind of attitude and instead normalize this because every culture, the Indian diaspora is vast and varied. Every single person, regardless of where you come from in India or South Asia or the world, is struggling with stress and burnout. So it needs the to be talked about. Human experience is pretty much the same, guys. Like, just, I think yes. everyone needs to understand that and just understand each other. You mentioned that you grew up in uh, Bombay, Mumbai. And I have a very, like I mentioned before, I have a very deep love for that city. Lived there for a year. I worked at Enron as my first job. Obviously, didn't work out for some reason. And before I went to law school, I ended up living in Bombay. And what neighborhood did you live in? I lived in Polly Hill. I love Polly Hill. It's my favorite. I moved in with an actress because why not? And I ended up working at a radio station. I was a backup dancer for this pop star. It was such a random, like, I was, I think my creative side needed to come out before I was going to law school and I didn't know what I wanted to do with it. So I like, I tried out to be a VJ and I, I just did everything I could because this was the time in Bombay where 2003, where a lot of expats were coming to Bombay to make it in Bollywood. It was just a more common thing for everyone, people to come into India and try to make it, right? And the bar scene, the club scene, all that was like getting bigger and bigger. So it was just an interesting time to be there. It was a fantastic 10 months there. I just absolutely loved it. And then I lived in India again with my husband with through Pepsi. So we did Delhi for a year and a half and then Bangalore for a year and a half. So very I've gone to India every summer growing up and then living there, a much deeper connection to, to, our, to the motherland. Tell me about your love for Bombay. Just like when I land and those airplane doors open and I smell Bombay, it like just lights me up and makes me so happy, no matter the smell. <laughs> I love Bombay. The cacophony of it, it's chaotic and crowded and It's just, you know, it's my birthplace. My grandparents lived there. I spent many, many, I spent the first six years of my life in India, in Bombay, in Shivaji Park. And went back every summer, Bombay is like where I come from. And I have, I still have lots of friends who live there. So I feel a deep sense of connection to Bombay. I love the people, the food, my family, my friends, I feel right at home. I haven't been back in about six years. It's one of the longest stretches of time. But I went back, the last time I was there, I went with my husband, who was not Indian, and he was embraced and welcomed. He has lots of friends in India because of HBS, of course, the Bombay crowd. It was just amazing. It was absolutely I love Bombay. I love how I love visiting and seeing how it's changed and how it's grown, how it's really becoming this hub. It also, you know, I have to say that I put on my public health hat often as an adult when I go there. And it also is heartbreaking seeing the crowding and the poverty and all of those public health infrastructure sorts of things from a not to be a downer, but I do think about that because no, not, that is also facts. my training. Yeah, it's like also my training. So I have that in my head as well when I'm there. But mostly for me, the three things that I think 
personally, my Indian identity centers on is the people. So my family and friends that I love, the food and the language. When I think about like, what is my Indian culture? So for me as a mother, what I'm hoping to impart on my next generation and offspring is the language, the food and family. And those are sort of like the three biggest things for me. Everything else is from there. But I, Bombay is like my second home. And yeah, I could go there. I mean, I would say the two places that I love, adore most in the world are New York City, because I went to college there, spent a long time there. And I just, it just, when I'm there, I just feel so relaxed and Bombay. And of course you can, you know, put in a little, like I love Rome and the Amalfi Coast and Geneva. I spent some time there, but nothing like, but Bombay is like absolutely like home. My parents are there right now as we, as we speak. So are mine. Right so are mine. No way. <laughs> they're building, they're building their, their second home there. They, they're in Houston. They're based in Houston. I grew up in Houston, but they're now doing the six month, six month thing. So they yeah, just, they're finishing same. up their, their flat there in Gandhi Valley. Cool. My parents live in Shivaji Park and honestly, like they go to, they travel to Bombay the way I travel to New York. I mean, it's it's wild. They're like I'm like, you just came back. That's amazing. Like, yeah, but it's, it's time to go. We have some. We have something happening. We have some. It's it's wild. That wasn't the case when we were growing up because it was a different era. You know, we would go for three months at a time. But yes, they go all the time, and we're so connected with lots of peanut yeah. butter, mozzarella sticks, toilet paper, <laughs> Ovaltine, and Ovaltine. Uh, yep. And we would bring back Horlicks and bourbon biscuits. And- <laughs> yeah. Yeah, all sorts so of other good. things. So, so you know, the, all sorts the of system. Other I know. Yeah, yeah, it was delicious. Now people in India are like, "Stop bringing stuff. We have everything here." Like, yeah, that's right. I mean, that was like happened in our lifetime. I'm actually going this year for the first time since we moved, which was 2013. The reason I haven't gone is because since then we've moved around every two years. It's just been, and then two kids, and just the heck, it's just so hectic. But now that my girls are 10 and seven, it's time for them to go see. Yeah, my brother went with his wife and his two little kids, just came back and was telling me about it. And I, it's, it's time for us to make that trip as a family. We haven't yet, but we will. Maybe next year. I'm not Come sure. Come in December. But we'll, uh, we'll all go. We'll yeah, all go hang we'll out. all go together. That would be amazing. Bandra and Polly Hill are like my favorite spots. I love South Bombay too, but I really love Polly Hill. There's something so special about it. And it's just so cool. My favorite restaurant is Olives, which is like I right love in that olives. area. Uh, so good. Yeah. Such a good vibe. And so fun. Otters Club, like that whole, that whole area. It's fantastic. Yeah. It's, it's a special area. I d- definitely hung out there quite a bit. Okay. I haven't even gone over your current role. You're co-director of the Harvard Medical School Clerkship in Community Engagement, which I also just wanted to say congrats on your Time Out podcast. I will definitely check it out. I didn't even realize, you've done so much stuff. I'm like, oh my God, she has a podcast too. I need to hear this. So um, <laughs> obviously I understand that world very well. So congrats on, on that. And um, hope you, hopefully you're enjoying that process because I obviously love it. Yeah, it was really fun. And we um, have done season one. That talks about a lot of the themes that we've talked about, which is like gender differences. And you'll like it as a working mom. It is fantastic. And my sister, Eve Rodsky. Is she your co-host? Yes. And she, it's like very much aligned with the work that she has done with Fair Play and Unicorn Life. And what's amazing is that last episode of season one, we did a creative exercise together. She led me through. And she said, you know, what's your highest dream, like your highest creative vision for you? And I said, I'm going to write a book. I had no idea what that meant at the time. And it was almost two years to the day. And The Five Resets is out in the world. So that conversation manifested The Five Resets. Yeah. I actually saw your post on that. I was looking through your Instagram for research. I just talked about that because I was looking and I was saying like, oh, when was the last time that, you know... And it was January 12th that we, I think we recorded it and it was like almost to the day, two years later. It was wild. I heard, I listened to that episode again and I thought, wow, like this is amazing because I didn't have a book deal at the time. I didn't, you know, it was just an idea and yeah, yeah it was cool. Maybe you'll write well, a book. Well, that's how it starts, right? Yeah. It's funny that you say that. It's, it's been on the top of my mind for a while. 
I'll give you some tips offline. We can talk. Yes, I will. <laughs> we'll, I definitely will be bugging you. We'll end with the fast round. So first thing that comes to your mind, ultimate collab for this year. Oh my gosh. Taylor Swift. <laughs> yeah. Why not? <laughs> not musically, but I don't know. I just think she's such a badass. I love her. Yes. I love the power she holds and she just stands in her power. And yeah, let's do it. Taylor Swift. (laughs) Let's do it. Taylor, if you're listening, (laughs) just letting you know. (laughs) Dinner party with three people dead or alive. Martin Luther King, Gandhi, and Madonna. Ah, love it. Madge, Madge. I'm going to her concert next week. Yay. That's awesome. Very exciting. I shook her hand once. I will tell you about my story. I almost died and didn't wash my hand for a week, but oh I, um, I need to go. I need to go to her con- at the concert this year. She's coming to Dallas. One of my friends is Madonna's mom friend, believe it or not. Their kids go to the same school and I'm always like asking her, but she won't tell me anything. But yeah, the kids are in school in I mean, the US here. Isn't that great? That, sh- that should be a collab. <laughs> right? Madonna's too cool for everyone. Oh, love her. I know. Biggest pet peeve. Ego and lack of authenticity. I can spot it. I think we all can a mile away. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter what you've accomplished. Kindness always wins. Love it. Love it. Biggest fear. Putting the five resets out into the world? I don't know. I am definitely facing all of my fears right now with Especially creatively, I think when you do something creative and put it out into the world, you don't know how it's going to be received. So whether it's this book or something bigger coming down the pike, it is fear-inducing and you just have to do it anyway. Yeah, no, but kudos for you. This is, it's like your baby, right? You're giving birth to your baby. Totally feels the same. Like every friend has asked me, you know, what is it like? It's like, it's like you're about to give birth and you've had this gestation period and it's, yeah, you're birthing a book. It's the book baby. It's the book baby for sure. Okay. If you have a bucket list, I'm not sure if you do, but if you have one, what's the one thing you want to check off this year? I would really love to spend two weeks. Ideally, I was going to say a month, but let's get realistic. Two weeks, completely unplugged with my family and some loved ones on an island and totally unplugged and just eating and drinking and scuba diving. I love to scuba dive and swim. And that is truly, that would be heavenly. A month of doing that, but I'll take two weeks. That sounds amazing. I might have to copy paste that for myself. (laughs) And then last question, because it is just a stress, a discussion on stress. What to this day still stresses you out the most that you still need to overcome? So many things. I think for me, I'm just a mere mortal. I know all of the science and yet I struggle like everyone else. And so I don't think there's just one thing. I think it's everything. And the one thing I will say is that I have the tools and the strategies. And if you read the five resets, you will too, to actually do something about it. So I don't ever feel like it's just one thing. It's many things, but I do have the ability now to handle it, which I would say the one thing is feeling that sense of agency and empowerment. Like, oh my God, I can do this. I can handle my stress. Never could just say that before, but now I can. That's awesome. Well, I am very, very excited to finish the book. I think all of us need it. All of us need to read this and to understand how to cope and become a better version of ourselves. I think everyone's desperate for it. Tuckered Out is hosted by me, Ami Tucker. This episode is produced by Jeannie Media with Jeannie Saraswathi, Ashley Tuff, Micah Sweetman, Hans Andres, and Laura Radescu. You can follow me at Tuckered Out Podcast on Instagram. And please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts.